Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 5 through 17. And I'll just give you guys a minute to flip if you need to. All right. Then Esther called for Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the, king, into the king's treasuries for the destruction of Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he may show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathok went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathok and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have, not seen, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time like this as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. Good morning, everybody. And kids, I just wanted to say first and foremost to you, happy Blue Seal Sunday. Yay. If you're visiting with us, if you're here for the first time, just so you know what we're doing, uh, all summer long in the sermon series, we have been working to learn one verse. It's been our theme verse for the whole series, 2 Corinthians 4-7. So kids, at the beginning of the summer, we communicated as we learned it together. Towards the end of the summer, right before school, we would celebrate uh, the hard work that everybody's done to learn and have a Blue Seal Sunday. So if you showed up a little bit early, you probably saw all the kids lined up right outside uh, after the first service to get their Blue Seal. Uh, some of the kids were still saying their verse in the line, and that's okay. Uh, so we'll have Blue Seal sent out again after this service. And if you're new, like if this is your first Sunday, you don't need to cram and you, you don't need to try to learn 2 Corinthians 4-7 in the next 45 minutes. It will be our gift to you as our guest. We would love to share uh, our Blue Seal ice cream with you, okay? All right, so that'll be right out on the sidewalk uh, when we're all done. And now I just want to introduce uh, the member of our pastoral team who will be preaching for us this morning. I just want to say one thing. Our sermon series all summer has been entitled Ordinary People, Gospel Power. And what I want to say about that is it's not just the title of a sermon series. It's a deeply held conviction that we hope shapes the way we live as individuals and as families, but also as a church family. 
And so if that truth is going to shape the way that we live as a church family, this church cannot be built around the personality or the platform or the performance of a person, a single pastor. We want Jesus to be at the center of our church family, and we want our team of pastors. And if, again, if you're new, let me just point out, these, our pastoral team is made up exclusively of ordinary people. There's nothing, no one that deserves a platform on our team. So we want Jesus at the center, and we want a team of ordinary pastors uh, pointing others to him and serving Jesus' family. So all summer long, we've rotated through our pastoral team so that this series would not be dominated by a particular pastor, a preaching style, so on and so forth. So this morning, Young Jay is the ordinary pastor who will be stepping up, and that's the beauty of the gospel anyway. The gospel is not dependent upon a performance, a platform, or a big personality. Uh, it's dependent upon Jesus and all the, the powers in the gospel. So Young Jay Han is one of the members of our pastoral team, and he's going to get up and share uh, the beautiful word for us this morning and point us to Jesus. So thanks, Young Jay. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Nice. Well, I'll pray for us to start, and uh, we'll get right to it. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for a place where we can worship and gather. Father, specifically, uh, in, for the next couple minutes, we pray uh, for your presence with us. We pray for understanding. We pray for conviction. We pray for your spirit. And ultimately, we pray that we can be able to see uh, Jesus Christ as our only Savior uh, through the story of Esther. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as John mentioned, uh, my name is Young Jae Han. Um, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So uh, Colorado Springs is where I did all my schooling from um, elementary school all the way up to college. So I never left Colorado until I was done with college. Uh, but I was on the basketball team during my freshman year in high school. Uh, and our team that year was pretty good. We were really good. So we actually went undefeated. No, not undefeated, almost undefeated. We lost one game uh, during that season. Um, in Colorado, and I think it's pretty similar to across the U.S., uh, but the basketball season, or high school basketball season, is during the winter. And right after winter, you typically have your, your club, like AAU like season, in the spring. Um, but for that spring season, you're not required to play with a school. You can play with whoever you want. Typically, you would play with the same, you would play the spring season with the same people that you played with during the winter season because you're going to be together for the next four years anyways. Well, for us, even though we were really good, uh, we did not get along. Like, we hated each other. So that one team actually became three different teams for the spring season because we weren't required to play, to play with each other. So everybody kind of formed their own team. Um, my friends and I got together. We formed our own team. Unfortunately, our team was the worst of the three teams uh, that, we, that we formed. And our identity as the worst of the three teams was known. We knew it. They knew it. We knew that they were better than us. They knew that they were better than us. So when the season, uh, when the schedule came out, of course, we're going to play one of those three teams. And they were better than us. So, but of course, we weren't going to outwardly admit it to a degree. But because we went to the same school, there was a lot of trash talking like leading up to the game. So we made a bet. Um, we made a bet that we weren't going to lose more than 20 points. So if we lost less than 20 points, then we win, and they owe us lunch. <laughs> so the game starts, and we're getting crushed. I think they had a couple guys that, went, that ended up going D1 a couple years later, and we're just getting annihilated. 
about 10 seconds left, there was, uh, we were down by 21 points. My buddy hits a three, he makes it, we lose by 18, so we won. So, <laughs> so we won the game. Um, so they bought lunch uh, that following week. See, so as the ordinary team that had zero people uh, going to D1, um, being on the receiving end of a reversed outcome of winning when actually losing was awesome. The story of Esther is about a bunch of group of ordinary people that was supposed to lose but ended up winning through God's sovereignty and power. So our, here's our big idea for uh, this week is God uses ordinary people to show his sovereignty and power. To provide some context to the story of Esther, let's talk a little bit about how Esther became Queen Esther. The story of Esther takes place after the Babylonian exile when Persia had replaced Babylonian as the ruling power. So location is Susa, which is the Persian capital during the reign of King Ahasuerus. This is almost 200 years after King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which is in the book of Daniel that Darren shared with us a few weeks ago. Uh, so even after 200 years, Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of the Jewish people were still living in exile. They were an outcast that no one cared about, but we'll find out later in the story that the outcasts, the weak, uh, were the ordinary people. They are the ones that, le that are left standing tall. So in chapter 1, just to kind of uh, put some uh, context to the story, in chapter 1, we see the king having two banquets. The, the first banquet was for the high-ranking nobles of his court and lasted for 180 days. So those were the high-ranking officials, governing, uh, governing officials, uh, pretty much party for 180 days. The second banquet was for all the people. And when, all, when they mean all the people, they mean the men. So the rest of the men that, was, that didn't belong in this special category, they had a banquet for seven days. And at the same time, uh, Queen Vasati put on a banquet of her own uh, for the woman. When you read through the, this specific part of the story in chapter 1, you'll notice that the author spent six verses to describe the king's banquet versus one verse for the queen's banquet. The king's banquet is described as a place of extravagance, rich garments, precious stones, and royal wine. Verses, on the other hand, verse 9, in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, describes the queen's banquet, and it literally just says, she had a banquet. And there's no any other descriptions. There is no feast. There is no fancy descriptions to show, um, to show any emphasis of importance. And this is a literally technique that the Bible uses at times to show emphasis of importance, to show that this is more important than this. And in this case, it wasn't enough to use five more verses to use the king's banquet, but in the queen's only verse, it added and doubled down and reminded us that nothing belonged to the queen. So we hear the word queen, and at times and we, use, uh, we think that the queen is equal to the king in power. In this story, during this time uh, in history, that was not the case. And to put it in context, this is the position that Esther ends up taking over. This is similar to whenever we PCS, and we get our household goods, and the movers come, and they look at me with all the stuff as if I have any authority to tell them where everything's going to go. I just have to tell them, like, dude, I just live here. You've got to ask my wife. I don't know where any of these things go. Then the story continues in chapter 1 into chapter 2, where the king orders Queen Vasati to join the men, men's party because she is, quote-unquote, lovely to look at. But the queen refuses to join the party, which upsets the king. This act of disobedience by the queen gets herself kicked out, and the king now forms a new uh, a pageant 
a beauty pageant, if you will, uh, to establish a new queen. And this is where, we, where uh, Esther comes into play. This is when we get introduced our two main characters for today's story. It's Mordecai and Esther. Esther is described as young and beautiful, but she lost her parents while she was young. And Mordecai, who is her uncle, adopted her. So now they have a relationship of a father and a daughter. Because, uh, because of Esther's beauty, she was chosen to be the next queen. Or the, yeah, yes, the next queen. And while Esther gains her, gains her uh, place in the palace as the new queen, Mordecai overhears two people plotting to kill the king. So because he hears two people plotting to kill the king, he tells Esther. In return, Esther tells the king. Uh, so the king uh, start, initiates an investigation, essentially, and the investigation proves that Mordecai's message was, to, uh, was true. So because of that, they recorded this in their official document in court, and in earn, Esther more brownie points as the queen. Then in chapter 3, we get introduced to our third character today is Haman. Haman is a government official who was promoted by the king as the number two man in the kingdom. So he was given all authority and power to do whatever he pleased uh, in the land. So when Mordecai refused to bow down to him in chapter 3, Mordecai angered the wrong person. Haman was so angry that killing Mordecai was not enough for him. He wanted to uh, get rid of all of the Jewish population as a whole because just getting rid of Mordecai wasn't enough because of his anger and how much he valued his identity in the palace. So Haman convinces the king to put on a written law and to financially support uh, his endeavor to, uh, to have the Jewish population destroyed. And this leads us to today's passage in chapter 4. So today's first point is this. Don't try to be like Esther, but to find your he uh, identity in your heavenly father. In today's passage, you'll see that at this point in the story, Esther lost favor of, from the king. So in chapter 4, verse 11, Esther shares that she hasn't seen the king in 30 days. Uh, Esther was, was chosen to be the queen because of her looks, because, she was, uh, because of her outer appearance and the king's desires. Well, it's kind of hard to do those things if you're not physically with the king. If you're not physically with the king, then it defeats the purpose of her being chosen to be the queen was because she was, uh, she was chosen to be the queen because of her looks. So when she hesitated to Mordecai's direction to say, hey, you need to go plead uh, on our behalf, she hesitated initially. And I'm sure, although I'm sure it was because of her, she was scared for her life, but at the same time, she, what she was saying was saying, hey, I don't think I can effectively appeal to the king. I haven't seen him in 30 days. Like, he doesn't care about me. I can't effectively appeal to the king when I go. So she was very hesitant. So then in verse 13 and 14, Mordecai gives her a very blunt response with her and tells her that she's not any more safe than any other Jewish person in the city. And that if she doesn't save them, then she will be affected. Not only will she be affected, but her rest of her family will also be affected as well. So this is when it gets interesting and it kind of gets weird because Esther all of a sudden becomes a new character. She's a suddenly a, a person with leadership and initiative, initiative. Earlier in the conversation, Esther is hesitant and give reasons as to why she won't be effective. But then after hearing Mordecai's blunt statement in verse 13 and 14, she immediately turns and gives order to Mordecai to start fasting on her behalf. So what happened? How does someone go from one moment from questioning her abilities to giving out orders? How does she go from hesitation 
to aggression within a moment. In one dialogue, she's transformed from a pretty young queen who has been more of an object than an agent, who has been more of a dutiful servant who is always obedient, and now she decides to disobey the law. In chapter 2, we see that she even actually hid her identity, uh, her Jewish background, so that she can be in the palace. When you read this book from the beginning, this is the first time that Esther demonstrates this kind of leadership and this kind of initiative. So what part of Mordecai's statement in verse 13 and 14 sparked this new side of Esther? So before we answer that question, uh, for the kids and really the adults in the room too, who is Team Iron Man? Yeah, just one? Then who's, then who is Team uh, Captain America? So Captain America. So in 2012 is when the Avengers came out uh, with the movie. And there is a scene when Iron Man and Captain America is arguing, and they have a disagreement on how, th how, should they, how they should approach Loki, uh, which is the bad guy that they just captured. And during this argument, Captain America at attacks Tony Stark and questions his identity by saying, big man in a suit, take that off, then what are you? Then Tony Stark responds to Steve Rogers with his own version of attacking Steve Rogers' identity by saying, a hero like you, you're a lab rat. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. So in this line, Tony Stark is reminding Steve Rogers that he didn't become Captain America through hard work or specialized training, but he gained his power, his strength, through literally just an opportunity, right? So at one point, he was weak and strong, or weak and uh, skinny. At another moment, a few minutes later, he is strong and muscular. The very thing that gave Captain America identity was not something that he earned, but it was the opportunity came to him and it was given to him. The way Esther became Queen Esther and Queen of Persia is pretty similar to how Steve Rogers became a Captain America. Esther was weak, she had no social status, with zero influence to help anyone, let alone herself. She also had no part in the vacancy of the position. So the, the position of the queen became vacant because Queen Vasati disobeyed. Esther has no part in that. She, it just became vacant, and because she was pretty, she was chosen to be the queen. So the one thing that made her uh, queen was her beauty, and even that was given to her at birth, and not necessarily anything that she did. Second half of verse 14 says that she had come to the kingdom for such time as this. Esther's position is strictly by grace. Her beauty and opportunity is given by God and verse 14 reminds us that she came to the kingdom through God, and that is her identity. Esther's identity, our identity, your identity, belongs and is established by our Heavenly Father and nothing else. The first time Esther looks to act and give, gives an order is once she finds her true identity. So where do you find yours? Where do you find your identity? Where do you find your value? Is it in the palace where the kings and the royalty live? Is it being the queen of Persia? Is it in your performance report that you receive every year? Stratification, money, position, duty title? Is that where you find your identity? Because it is for me. I don't know where you find your identity, value, or worth. And for some of us, you may not have the answer to that right now. You may not know where you gain your identity. 
you might not know for yourself, but the fact is you were created by a heavenly Father that loves you. Psalms 139, verse 13 through 14 tells us, For you formed my inner parts. You're knitting me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Wonderful are your works, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. By a perfect father that loved you so much, that gave up his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus lived a life that we could not live, and he died a death that we should have died. If you find motivation to be like someone, then it doesn't last. If you look at this story of story of Esther, and you want to be like Esther as an example, and try to change your external actions without realizing your internal identity of your true identity, then you'll end up being disappointed. This leads us to our second point, which is to see Jesus Christ as our only Savior. This story is not for us to look at Esther so that we can save others. This story is not for us to look at Esther as an example so that we can save yourself, so that you can save your your family and your friends around you. But it's to see uh, see Jesus Christ as our ultimate Savior. There is a lot of smart, strong, and accomplished people in this room. But for the most part, and for the most part, we're able to sustain ourselves and live a normal life without God, if we're being honest. You can have a normal family, you can have a normal church, you can have a normal group of friends, and you can sustain yourself without God, but to an extent. Fulfillment, love, peace, and comfort, you can also experience to a degree without God. But it's just a small sip. It's not a full drink. You will always be left hungry and thirsty without our Savior, Jesus Christ. You may feel satisfied for a moment, but it won't last. It will go away. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, and came down, and who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Esther saved her people by two things, identification and mediation. Once she realized her identity, then she was able to mediate for her people. Identification and mediation is what, she, uh, what saved uh, the people through Esther. Esther realized her identity as the Persian queen and entered the king's palace to save her people. Jesus knew his divine identity as the rescuing king and entered the Calvary to save us. At the foot of the cross is where you find your value and worth. At the foot of the cross is where I find my value and my worth. When you have a big group of people like this, it's nearly impossible for us to have the same preference, right? So let's play a quick would you rather. Would you rather get on a rotator or would you rather use a commercial flight? So raise your hand for a commercial flight. Raise your hand for a rotator. A couple more. You're probably never going to leave. You're probably going to get delayed. Chanel and I uh, PCS to Okinawa back in September, and I'm sure most of us can, can agree that interna- international travel plus COVID is the worst thing in the world. And I don't even know if that actually describes how bad it is. <laughs> but um, our overall trip from Colorado to Seattle to Okinawa overall took four days of travel, two ER visits, and checking in and out of the same hotel three times at Seattle. At w- <laughs> so 
I, uh, one day we should have an open mic to kind of just share uh, who has the worst rotator story, then uh, the lion would just be out the door. But um, I remember at one point uh, during the trip, uh, I told Chanel, I think this might have been maybe our second or third time uh, checking in and out of that hotel. And um, I remember telling Chanel, I was like, I don't think we're going to make it. I think this is the end of our career. We're never going to make it to Okinawa. Uh, so at, after that moment, I told myself, I will never take the rotator. At any given opportunity, I'll take a commercial airline over the rotator, simply because the rotator will get you there, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it will get you there on time. Any traveler, any normal traveler, would want their flights to take off on time. We like guarantees. We like when promises are fulfilled. Christianity is the only religion that promises our place in heaven. If you look at Mormonism, they believe in three different kinds of kingdom and believe that depending on your action and the way you live your life, you will go to one of those kingdoms if you go to a kingdom. In Islam, you have to perform their ritual prayers in a specific way five times a day and fast during the month of Ramadan and make sure that your good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. Well, it's pretty rough because how do you know that your good deeds outweigh the bad deeds? How do you know that in advance so that you can course correct before it's too late? You don't. You won't know. You won't know until it's over, until it's too late. And in Buddhism, they believe that the cause of any suffering is greed. So the goal is to eliminate all desires and greed from your heart. But I think we can all agree that that is not possible. They also believe in karma when it affects your rebirth in the future. So the better you are in this life, the better it, the rebirth is in your next life. So the common theme is that the salvation is on the people. Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is given to you. Your salvation is your responsibility, and it's on you. What separates Christianity from every religion is that you are not responsible for your own salvation. Gospel of Jesus Christ is able to, pros is able to promise salvation because gospel is not centered around a ritual, but it's centered around a person. The centrality of the gospel is not your life, but it's Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. So today's big idea, God uses ordinary people to show his sovereignty and power. So as we've discussed, Esther in this story is the ordinary person that's being used uh, by God. So now let's talk about some ironic events that occur throughout the story. And if you continue reading this passage, the passage that we just read in chapter 4, uh, and we don't really have the time to like really get into it today. But if you uh, continue to read, then you'll, you'll find five uh, events that happen in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, verse 1, King has a hard time sleeping. So then in verse 2, he goes and reads the daily court records. Then as he's reading that, he finds out that Mordecai is actually the one that discovered the plot that I mentioned earlier uh, that ended up saving him. So as soon as he found out that Mordecai is the one that, uh, that saved him in verse 2 and 3, King wants to reward Mordecai. And as this is happening, Haman, the one that wants to kill Mordecai, walks in. Haman has no idea that King wants to reward Mordecai. He just, in general, he just made a uh, general question saying, hey, I just want to reward someone that is deserving. Ask a general question to Mordecai. Mordecai, with his, with his ego and his pride, he thought that was about himself. So the king just asked him a general question on how he should reward someone he wants to honor. And Haman, thinking that his recommendation, 
he's going to be the one that's receiving the reward. So he recommends that the person should be promoted to be the, no, the, to be the most noble official. It's ironic that the king is looking for the means to reward Haman's enemy. Haman has no idea, and he's the one at hand at the verge of his own agenda, which has the opposite goal in view. So the irony between these five ordinary events is very interesting when you break it down. We have hard time sleeping all the time, right? We can't sleep all the time, so what do we do? We get on Facebook, we get on Instagram. For the king, when he had a hard time, he read court records. I guess that's what you do when you're a king. I don't know. But how ironic is that inconvenient that Haman is walking in as the king is looking for counsel to reward Mordecai, but Haman, not knowing it's Mordecai, then he seeks counsel from Haman, who's trying to kill Mordecai. But Haman has no idea Mordecai is the recipient of this reward and makes his recommendation. What are the chances of this happening? Each of these events, incidents by itself may appear to be the result of chance, but when you put all this together, then I think that eliminates the, the chance disappears. And, it, and at times, it may seem like these events have no bearing upon the success of the great plot, but they all converge upon one on one point and one supplement the other. Every event in this story is shaped by God's sovereignty, power, but most importantly, his love for the outcast, his love for the weak. Let's look at another set of irony where when you look at the whole story from a holistic point of view, then you can see that God is at work. So the left side is essentially before Esther acted in, verse, uh, in chapter 4. The right side is what happened after Esther uh, acted. So in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, you see that Haman was promoted. Because he was promoted, everything, everyone needed to bow down to him. Fast forward, after Esther uh, acts, you see that Mordecai is the one that gains power, and he gains more and more power, and he's in the king's house. Next slide. And in chapter 4, before Esther acted, Mordecai is on sackcloth and ashes, and he has bitter cry. Fast forward, Mordecai is in royal robes, not sackcloth and ashes and he's shouting for joy instead of a bitter cry. Then in chapter 4 and verse 3, you see that there was great mourning among the Jews. Fast forward after Esther acts, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. There's a complete reversal once uh, Esther acts. Then lastly, in chapter 5, you see, Mordeca you see Haman talking to his family about how he wants to, uh, his plan to kill Mordecai. You see, and when you fast forward later in chapter 7, Haman is actually killed by the very thing that he prepared for Mordecai. So there's a complete reversal of the before and after, uh, after Esther uh, acts. In the beginning of the story, Esther and Mordecai had zero power, zero influence, joy, and peace. They were in the valley, but through God's sovereignty, everything was reversed. Sackcloth and ashes turned into royal robes. Great mourning turned into gladness and joy. The humble and the poor gained great power. And the person who prepared the means of destruction lost his life by the very thing that he prepared. So today's illustration is, uh, is up on the slide, and uh, it will be uh, explained by our illustrator, Bria. Um, so on the, in the big square, there's Mordecai standing out of the gate with Esther's inside and Haman and the king. And then um, there's the king showing a scepter down to Esther from being promoted, and then Haman, and the, 
Haman outside crying, Mordecai inside all dressed in the and what Haman thought he was going to get, and Esther and the king. Thank you. I prepared two weeks for this. She shows one picture and explains it in 30 seconds. That was awesome. <coughs> when Jesus was crucified on the cross, his disciples fled. Many of his followers were crushed with disappointment because their perception of the Messiah is not on a rugged cross. In a secular perspective, and really our perspective at times, death doesn't equal victory. If Haman had succeeded, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed and the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants would have come to an end. The sovereign God that we see in the book of Esther is well and alive today. I don't know where everyone is on your walk of life, but some of us may be in the valley today. You may have been in the valley for a long time. It's a constant two steps forward and a five steps back. But the story of Esther reminds us that, that we worship a God of reversal. Same God that reversed the course of Mordecai and Esther's life can, will, and has reversed your life. The valley is not the end. It doesn't define you. The struggle you're going through isn't your identity. Interesting fact, in the whole book of Esther, God is actually never mentioned. There is not a single verse in the book of Esther where God is mentioned. It's, it's hard to say why that is, but that doesn't mean that God's not at work in this story. His divine intervention is clearly active in this story. In the midst of the valley, you may not feel like God is not around. When you're down at the pits, you may not feel or see his presence, but that doesn't mean he's not at work. You have a heavenly father as your ultimate savior who has given you identity and value as his daughter and son, which means that you will never be forsaken or forgotten. The story of Esther reminds us that God is with us in the midst of the valley. It reminds us that he's at work even though we don't see his writing on the wall that he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son to die for you. That is everything that someone can give, is, your, is their daughter and son for your sake. Turning point in this story is in chapter 4, verse 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. This fast that the Esther is ordering is a direct order of intercession. The Persian queen is ordering her people to call out to the rescuing king, our ultimate rescue and rest, your ultimate rescue and rest, my ultimate rescue and rest, starts when you call out to your heavenly father. If I can ask the worship team to come back, and I'll wrap up with one last story. A few years ago, I was on a deployment, and at that time, Aiden was about 18 to 20 months. So he wasn't really saying anything. He was saying random words here and there but there probably weren't words. They were, he was just saying random things. Uh, it wasn't until the middle of my deployment when he was able to say daddy in Korean. Daddy in Korean is appa. So after work, get back to my room, I would FaceTime my family, and the whole FaceTime, he would say, appa, appa, appa. And then after we get off FaceTime, turn off the lights, I close my eyes, and the only thing I hear is, appa, appa, appa. And that's what I look forward to uh, as I was getting ready to come home. Out of the many things that I was uh, getting, uh, looking forward to about coming home, 
that was the, the one thing that was the most precious. As a father, the most precious thing for me was to hear my son to call, to call me out as dad with his voice. Your heavenly father, your rescuing king, his greatest desire is for you to call out to him as your father. For some of us, you've never called out to God as a father, but you don't have to walk through the valley alone. For a moment, you might be able to sustain yourself, but eventually you'll run out of gas because that was never the point. If that's you, know that you have a heavenly father that wants a relationship with you. And as a church, we exist to walk through that path with you. And for others, you have a profession of faith, that you have met Jesus, as Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But it's been a long time that you've actually called out to him. It's been a long time that you've called out to him as your father, as your rescuing king. We get wrapped up in the business of life. We try to control the things that we can't control. Now you're burnt out. It's because we're not created to live away from our father. We're not created to live independently. We're created to live in a line and following suit of our father, Jesus Christ. We are created to call on our father for rest and rescue. Let's call out to him together now. Father, we come here today to give you worship and to give you praise. Father, you are sovereign, you are powerful, you are good, you are kind, you are merciful, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Everything happens through you and by you. Father, at this time, I pray that we can remember that the story of Esther reminds us that the same power and sovereignty that we see in, uh, in the story of Esther exists in our, in our life that you are at work in our life. Father, I pray that as we call out to you today and as we call out to you for the rest of the week, that, that you will listen because you promised that you listen in, our, in your scripture. God, I pray that we can live our lives in confidence and in peace, not because we are extraordinary, because we are just ordinary people, but we live our lives in confidence and in peace and in hope because of our rescuing king. Father, we love you, and in Jesus' name, amen.